There's a little subsection in the Psalms that uh, we call the Psalms of Ascent. It's found in chapters 120 through 134 of the Psalms. Technically, the Psalms are not chapters. They are independent, tiny little vignettes of truth that are put together in a formation that, has help, that helps us when we read through it to understand the great care that God takes in our discipleship and leading us in the truth. Uh, this subsection, Psalms 120 through 134, are a number of Psalms, most of them very short, uh, easy to memorize, that uh, are to be sung when a pilgrim, one of the Israelites, is journeying into Jerusalem. Most of you know that the city of Jerusalem was built on a, a heightened plateau. And so anywhere you came from, if you're going to Jerusalem, you had to go up into Jerusalem. And so that's why these songs are called the Psalms of Ascent. As these pilgrims were making their way up the mountain to go into those gates of that fortified city, they were singing these psalms. These psalms were on their lips and in their hearts, and they expressed their gratitude for all that God had done to sustain them while they were not in the city of God, and also the joy they have to come near to God in that holy place to offer worship and sacrifice and to experience the fellowship of the saints. The psalms of ascent can be broken down into two groups of seven. Each of those two groups contains two Davidic psalms written by King David, who was a prolific psalm writer. Uh, the center psalm in the set was written by Solomon, uh, the son of David. And then the rest have anonymous or mixed authorship. Many of the psalms of ascent um, are encouraging in nature, but there are also some psalms in ascent that are somewhat lamenting, looking back on the times when Israel did not have access to their temple and they did not have access to worship and praise the Lord. But today we're going to be ex examining uh, a passage of scripture that is a little bit longer. It's nine verses in length and it captures a bit of the joy that someone would feel when they drew near to the city of David with anticipation and a happy heart. And so we are in Psalm 122 and I would like to read the whole of this scripture before we begin to exposit and break down the text for you this morning. Starting in verse 1. A song of ascents of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Let's pray. I thank you, Almighty God, for the things you will teach us in this text. And I pray, Father, that the songs that we sing would all reflect on the greatness of your being and character on the uniqueness of your triune personage, that you are Father, Son, and Spirit, perfectly united and with one will, sharing the divine attributes that are unique only to you, and that you rule over all the creation that you have made. Help us to rejoice in this fact, Lord. And I pray, God, that even our obedience today, as we listen to the word and we submit ourselves to it, would be like a sweet song to your ears, as you hear your saints saying amen to the things that you have to show them about who you are. I praise you, God, for the time we get to spend together. May you uh, bring good things out of it in Jesus' name. Amen. The person who sings this psalm is unashamed to proclaim that together with other brothers and sisters in faith, in order to give worship to Yahweh, the gathering is one of the greatest joys of their lives. 
When you think about the Psalms of Ascent, specifically this psalm, you might picture pilgrims who are likely worn out after a long journey, coming through the gates of David's wonderful city, making their way to that grand temple, which was a wonder of ancient architecture and was well known throughout the Mediterranean region. But we know that the temple was almost certainly not in the psalmist's mind because this psalm was written by David himself. And the scripture records that King David, though he had a desire to build a grand temple fit for the worship of the living God, was not allowed to do so. The temple was not built until after David's death, the work being accomplished by Solomon, David's son, who took the throne after he passed away. So the glorious temple that we read about in 1 Kings and Chronicles, the temple that the Queen of Sheba marveled at in 1 Kings 10, was not the house of the Lord that David sings about here. Rather, the house of the Lord that David is referring to is almost certainly the tabernacle. Now, it's worth pointing out this difference, friends, because it is helpful to know that the saint who sings this song is not glad in heart because he's going to see a spectacle of some kind. He is not caught up in the superficial wonders of, play, of the place where God and, and would be worshipped with, with sacrificed offerings and, and gift offerings and wave offerings. The temple that Solomon built was an impressive structure. While not massive in size, the structure was built to an incredible standard of quality and was adorned inside and out with detailed artistry and overlaid with tremendous amounts of gold. Though King David was exempted from building the temple, he still longed for God to have a suitable dwelling place that was worthy of his worship. And so before his own death, he spared no expense in accumulating materials that would help his son, his successor, to produce a great and marvelous house for Yahweh. The temple was not only beautiful to behold, but was filled with valuable things. Implements of gold and silver, the lampstands, the great brass sea basin used for ceremonial washing, the, the table that held the consecrated bread intricately carved out of akasha wood. All of these were created by the most skilled craftsmen and were of the highest quality. Many of these goods were eventually plundered when the Babylonian Empire took the city of Jerusalem. Though they did not worship Yahweh, they could see the pure value of the goods contained in that place. In comparison, the tabernacle that preceded the temple was a humble place. It was not a permanent structure, but rather a portable canvas tent that could be disassembled and travel along with the people of Israel wherever the Spirit of God led them to go. All of the fun functional aspects of the temple were also present in the tabernacle, but the form of the tabernacle was definitely subordinate to its function. What mattered in the, in the sense of the tabernacle was coming and worshiping the Lord God. So what drew people to the tabernacle? What was its allure? It was not the superficial beauty of the place, nor the architectural brilliance, nor the unparalleled craftsmanship. It was the presence of God that was believed and understood to dwell there in that humble tent. The tabernacle was built to be a house for the presence of God. And those who went to the tabernacle went to draw close to the Lord. They went because there in the holiest of holies, stationed inside of that tent, was the Ark of the Covenant. The symbolic throne of God was there, resting securely within the holiest of holies. This great seat was flanked by two angelic carvings as a reminder that, that Yahweh, the King of kings and Lord of lords, took his dwelling place among his people, and his law was ultimate among them. 
They went there to offer sacrifices, both gifts of praise and celebration for all that Yahweh had done for the people and offerings of atonement so that they could acknowledge the reality of their own sin and their need for that sin to be covered in order for them to have a right relationship and fellowship with the Holy God. They came to this tent to sing about God's glory, to confess along with other Israelites that the God who has established their covenant was a God who never breaks a promise, a God who had provided for their needs and has given them security and shelter from the other warring tribes and nations who surrounded them and who were driven out of the land when God gifted it to them. They came to pray to God, to communicate to Yahweh their their gratitude and their love for all that He had done to set them apart from other nations and to establish them as a holy people, and to build a strong and meaningful connection between them and their covenant God. They came to be under the teaching and the preaching and instruction of God's holy word, to hear what God had to say about himself to Moses, to the prophets, that they might not think of God in the wrong ways, that they might better appreciate his uniqueness and grow in their love and devotion to him. That is why they came to this tent. Those who sang this joyful song of ascent were happy, not because they were coming to a show, but because they were coming to worship the one and only God. And today we certainly live in an age and we live in a land where the gathering together of people into houses of worship has become in many ways polluted by the pagan notion that in order to draw a crowd, we need to give people what they want. I don't think that the rest of history has been immune to this, but in modern times, the art of captivating people's attention by keying in on the things that are most appealing to their corrupt human nature has caused many churches in our day and age to operate as a spectacle of entertainment rather than a reverent space where human beings can come and think less of themselves and more of the one who made them. We ought not be surprised by this, friends. God has warned us through his word that this would certainly be an alluring temptation in these last days that we dwell in. Second Timothy chapter four, verses three through four says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. Second Timothy four, three through four. To the lost heart, the sound of teaching God's word is not attractive. For someone who has not been made new by the grace of Christ, to hear the preaching of the truth does not draw huge crowds. It is not something to be relished for the loss. It is something to be endured. To the one who is not regenerate, hearing that there is a mighty being, one who is holy in all his ways and who hates sin, one who will judge the wicked and who is deeply concerned with the actions and thoughts of mankind, that's not attractive to them. They don't want to hear that. It is not something that makes their heart glad. They want to hear a story, but not a story about God. They really want to hear a story about themselves. Tell me more about me. I really am concerned with me. So if you can preach to me about me, then you've got my attention. 
They want to hear how they can improve on their way of living, how they can solve the riddle of life and make some practical adjustments so that they can avoid some of life's inconveniences and pitfalls and become more impressive to their peers, that they might have a a sense of stability that others might covet and envy. They want to sing songs that are going to stir them up and make them feel like their lives are more significant. They love to sing about how much they are loved because they long for others to acknowledge how lovely they are. And sadly, that is the kind of singing that many churches put before their congregations today. Songs that include mention of God primarily as a device to make the beloved feel more beloved. But our worship really should be about the the one who loves the beloved, about the one who is worthy of all honor and glory and praise. But that's not what people want today. People want to be assured that everything is going to turn out all right. They want to make sure this is a comedy and not a tragedy. But they're not so keen on hearing that they are sinners, that they cannot provide the solutions to their own problems, that they were engineered to live a life that depends on God, not just for a few things, but for everything. And that because of their sin, apart from faith in God, they have no hope and a grim future unless they repent and turn to the living God and His Son. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 23 through 25. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to the ones who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Rest assured, there is no foolishness in God. There is no weakness in Yahweh. But whatever we would consider the weakest element of who God is, or the most foolish part of God's character and being, that is infinitely greater than the best example of humanity that I could put before you today. The Israelite in their rebellion would not see the Messiah for who he was. They ignored the scriptural evidence that his life was the fulfillment of centuries of prophetic writings. They had no desire to hear him teach about repentance and reconciliation. They did not want to see signs. or I'm sorry, they they did not want to hear the truth. They wanted to see signs. They were intrigued by his power to do things that they had never seen before. And Luke 11, 29 says, When the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the signs of Jonah. So this is a little backwards for our commercial environment that we live in today. You want the crowds to come to you, right? Do everything you can to get the crowd to come to you and then say what you got to do to keep them in those seats. But that's not how Jesus preaches. He sees the crowds growing. He sees the multitudes coming. And what does he say? This generation, the one who has come to hear me preach, this is an evil generation. He is honest with them. He does not change the story so that people are drawn to the flame like a moth. After Jesus had fed the multitudes with just a few loaves and a couple fishes, the crowd sought Jesus out again. Why? Not so that they could repent and follow, but because they wanted him to make them another meal. Show us again this mighty sign that you performed before. When Jesus is brought before King Herod on the night of his trial, did not the king delight at the opportunity to see him do some kind of sign? He would have preferred a court jester or a magician, perhaps, to this humble and meek Jew that stood before him without opening his mouth. Disappointed at the lack of entertainment value, Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate. The lost world is not glad 
at the prospect of coming under the teaching of the true God. And sadly, many, many who would leave the church of today are mistaken to think that if they simply crank up the fog machine and follow the patterns of the most popular social influencers, then they will draw in crowds of people who will just fall in love with the church. But the problem is, when you present the assembly of the saints as something categorically foreign to what the church should be, then you are not winning people to the church with that kind of a display. When the gospel is not preached boldly, and the Savior is not front and center, exalted above all things, you might be winning a vast crowd to something, but you're not winning them to Christ. Devotion to anything less than Jesus is hollow. It's perhaps even idolatrous. And those who are drawn to these hype factories may feel a sense of wonder for a time. It might leave them with a bit of tingle in their emotions as they walk out of that place. But it's hard to keep that up, friends. And eventually many of them will realize that the world is much more effective at tickling the ears and providing the spectacle than the church can ever hope to be. And they will move on to the next thing that piques their interest. But those who have had their sins washed away, those who know the depth of their error and have come face to face with the facts that they cannot be holy apart from the gift of God's grace, these have grown to desire the true milk of God's word. They have grown weary with the superficial buzz of fancy light shows and man-created, man-centered worship. They are glad to come to the house of the Lord, as the psalmist sings in verse 1, not because of some spectacle that happens there, but because it is where we go to meet with the Lord together. This psalm begins in verse 1, talking about the house of the Lord, and ends the same way. Verse 9 speaks again about the house of the Lord. He will seek the good of Jerusalem in prayer for the sake and benefit of the house of the Lord. But if the psalm is really about the physical house, then we really wouldn't need to sing it anymore. The tabernacle of which David is speaking has been gone for a long time, hasn't it? The temple that Solomon built in all of its glory was laid to waste by Babylon in 586 B.C. And the temple that King Herod built to replace it fell in 70 A.D. Not one stone left upon another. We have been almost 2,000 years without a physical house of God. But we have not been without the worship that David describes here. What is really in view in Psalm 122 is not the physical location so much as the redeemed people of God putting aside whatever else they are doing and gathering together, no matter how far they have to go, to give honor and glory to the God that loves them, to the God that they love. Psalm 122 at its heart is about public gathered worship. The principles are relevant and true for all who gather together in collaborative, collective praise for Yahweh. When we do this, when we stop the other things that fill up our life and we go and rest our heart on Christ, not just by ourselves, but sitting next to other people who each have a story of how the Lord God has worked in and through them. When we gather together with this family that God has made us to be, it is like an oasis in a desert, a desert of deception and corruption. When we come together, it's not like we're a bunch of perfect people gathering but we come to a perfect God and we come to experience his mercy and grace and reflect on the fact that he loves us 
despite the fact that we would have blended right in with the terrible desert of destruction and deceit that we were brought out of, unless God came and made us new. And that is exactly what he has done for those who are saints. For those who are constantly bombarded with propaganda from self-serving news outlets, who must constantly wonder if the most basic pieces of news are even remotely true, or just the next attempt to subtly conform you to the divisive narrative of the world, to be in the house of God with other believers and to sing about the eternal truths of a God who doesn't change is like water in the desert to come together with brothers and remember that there is truth and God proclaims it. We have life together. All the temporary things that give us so much grief in this world are put into the right perspective when we come and put our thoughts and affections upon the one who is eternal, who does not shift, a God who says it and then does what he says. Here the people love the God that you love. And so it's not just you and God. It's you and your church family coming under one father who cares for all of you as a conglomerate together. You are in, here to encourage one another and to experience the joy of having friendship and a friendship that is bound not just by a, a common interest, but on the indwelling Holy Spirit that binds us for eternity as one family. These people that you gather together with to worship the Lord, they say amen to so many of the things that resonate with your heart. There will be differences among us, friends, but what we hold in common far outweighs the differences. As a confessional church, we have the framework to experience this like-mindedness to an even greater degree as we work to think in proper ways and to let the scripture instruct who we are. The deception of our enemy and even the deception of our own heart is exposed by the light of God's word here. When you come here, whatever people told you that was false, you're going to see the truth when you enter in. And the word is preached in clarity. Here we remember who God is. We remember who he has made us to be. It should be a place when the saints are gathered together where there is no partiality, where there, the superficial things of, of earth don't matter or they matter very little compared to the substances of what God has desired for his people. What a joy to gather with this heavenly family. And to be sure, gathered worship is a foretaste of the delight that we will experience in heaven. Amen. We should think about heaven, friends. We should, we should think about the fact that there will be a day when that sin that has been like a weight tied to you, slowing you down, hindering you, that you have had to confess and ask repentance, uh, repentant forgiveness for over and over again in your life, when that will be cut off from you once and for all. Well, you will not even have the freedom to say an ill word to a brother, but we'll only speak the truth in love. We'll only encourage. We'll only build up. There will be a day when we leave behind the frail bodies that so often plague us, that we so often complain about and find reasons to be upset about. These clay vessels will be exchanged for eternal vessels that will not wear out, that will be fit for the worship of God for eternity. Think about heaven. Look forward to heaven. But don't forget that heaven is not just that far away thing. Heaven is the fulfillment of what you're already experiencing now because God has loved you well and has brought, him, and brought you near to himself. We get to experience a, a foretaste, a shadow of the heavens when we gather together and sing with one voice to a God who is greater than all of us. This public gathering of the saints should be so vital to the Christian that the idea of not being able to do it should be alarming to our soul. It's useful to notice that there are many specific psalms 
where, where the worship of God is, is rejoiced over, where we are grateful that we get to sing to him. But there are also psalms that present a contrast of that experience, a contrast to Psalm 122. Not everyone could go to the house of the Lord. Some were exiled far away. Some had no temple to go to because some foreign nation had destroyed it. Some of them were having to deal with the tribulations of war and could not travel. And so turning our attention to Psalm 42, if you want to turn there, you can. I'll read just the five verses out of this psalm. We get the other side of the coin. My heart was glad when they said, let us go up to the house of the Lord. But when I can't go to the house of the Lord, my heart should be grieved by that. Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants for the flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. And as a kid who grew up in a King James church, I want to say, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee, right? You sang it. But think about what is being said there. This one is panting for God. He has not been able to experience the oasis of worship with brothers and sisters. He says in verse 2, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? He can't go where he wants to go. He can't bring his sacrifice of praise. Verse 3, My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This psalmist in Psalm 42 doesn't get to have the same spark of joy that the psalmist in 122 gets to have. There are circumstances preventing him from going to experience the beauty of that, that place of worship and the dynamic of gathering with brothers and sisters in faith. And so he confesses that he's downtrodden here. He confesses that his heart is heavy and he longs for those days. But he doesn't give up hope because even when hindered, the saint can think about the times when they will worship. Pastor Paul today preached about the importance of the church gathered and how we should not think of our faith simply as an individual experience between me and God, but that God rather brings us into a family that we experience together the beauty of shared faith in God and in Christ. And so as we look at Psalm 42, and as we think about the fact that not everyone is able to gather together, some are hindered. We know that there is still hope for them. When John Bunyan was in prison for year after year after year because he refused to not preach the word of God, he wasn't destroyed of heart, but he longed for the fellowship of the saints. He wanted to be back with the church, but God sustained him still. Have we experienced this before, saints? Have you felt like Psalm 42 before? Have we not been given the very helpful life lessons sung here in the 42nd Psalm just a couple of short years ago? I pray that when churches were shut down and you couldn't come together with the saints like you used to, that it grieved your heart. That you did not see it as a Sunday vacation for a few weeks where you could just do whatever you wanted to do on the Lord's Day, but that you truly felt like there was something missing because you could not put your arms around your brother or sister and wish them well. Because you could not sing out and hear the bass or the tenor across harmonize with you. I pray that it grieved you. You understood the weight of what you were missing, that you longed to hear your own voice mingled with the voices of your brothers and sisters in public worship. Perhaps prior to that, 
you had taken the assembly of the church for granted. I know that I have. I know that I had taken it for granted. And I am so grateful. As much as that was a difficult time and the church had to fight through some very difficult controversies and, and mistakes that churches were making, ours included, I am so grateful for that time because it gave me a fresh look at how blessed we are that God says, don't work seven days a week. Don't just go and go and go. And don't just run off and and do your own thing and think that that's restful to you. But stop your labors and come to me and and rest in the grace that Christ can give you. Without that connection, friends, we are dry and we are parched. Psalm 137, verse 1, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. They remember Zion because they're in Babylon. They are exiles. They have been brought out of their holy place. They are nowhere near the holy city. Verse 2. On the willows there were hung up our lyres. This instrument, a stringed instrument that they would sing worship on. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the songs, the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Now, I know Psalm 137 has a very literal interpretation where we think about the fact that these Israelites were displaced from their homes and they had grown up going to Jerusalem regularly but could not go anymore because of this exile situation. But there is a sense in which this applies to the saints also when we are denied the freedom to go and worship. I think of some of these nations in the world where there is a small but faithful contingent of believers who call upon the name of Christ, but they have to do so secretly because they know if, if the people with the machine guns see them doing it, then that's the last time they'll worship the Lord on this earth. We don't have to deal with that, friends, but others have and others do. So let us rejoice. Let us be glad when someone says, let us go to the house of the Lord, for it is our privilege and our blessing to be able to gather together and sing his praises, and to hear his word preached. How would your life be different, friend, if you were not able to come and gather with the other saints to exalt the name of Jesus? Stop and think about that. If you didn't come here each week, if you just did what you thought was best in your own eyes, how would your life be different? Empty. Unhappy. Aimless. There'd be brokenness there. I wouldn't have the accountability that I have, so I know I would fall into sins of some kind. I know that, that I would probably just fill it up with selfish things. I would become very much so self-absorbed because I'm not regularly seeing that what my life needs to be about is not about Nick Neves, but it's about Yahweh. Is online worship the same as gathering together with the saints, friends? There's no hugs. The singing, not corporate. You aren't taking communion together. You're not here to serve and to share your gifts with one another. There is no visitor showing up at your house that you might engage and testify to. Some of you I saw today, there was a new family, and some went to that new family and immediately began to talk to them. You wouldn't have that happen if you're just watching an episode of Church at Home, but here you do. Here people will come, and you can't plan for it. You don't know who's going to come. You come and you let the Lord show you what you're to talk about today. For the shut-in there is a concession and a partial blessing for those who cannot leave their home. But for the rest of us, we must be careful that it isn't just another manifestation of the ear-tickling culture that we live in, where you're encouraged to do everything your way right away. Well, I'd rather not get dressed for church. I don't want to take a shower today. That would be an inconvenience to me. So I'll just turn on the tube and I'll watch this, ser- this sermon online. 
which, let's be honest, folks, I've watched sermons online too. Usually I get about 12 minutes of the sermon before a child jumps up and wants to wrestle with me. Or the dog needs let out and I got to go get interrupted by that. Or I'm suddenly hungry, so I pause it to go get a sandwich and I come back and I forget all about what I was doing. Online worship is not the same, friends. And if we find ourselves easily putting the gathered worship that should be our joy and our blessing to the side and taking up lesser endeavors, then let us consider that the object of our worship is of infinitely more value to the saved sinner than any vacation could be, than any sporting event could be, than any money-making opportunity could be. We say amen when our confession reminds us that acts of mercy and necessity are valid reasons to be absent on the Lord's day. We know that's true. You know, some of us are police officers, and there's got to be somebody keeping people from breaking into the banks. Some of us are nurses or doctors. There's got to be somebody ready there in case someone gets hurt on the Lord's Day. So we're not here to condemn anyone who has to work on the Lord's Day. But we also realize that even those who are doing very important tasks that cause them to miss church are having to miss out on something so important to their spiritual well-being. Pray for your brothers and sisters who can't be here every Sunday. I think about our brother Ivan, who recently got a promotion that, praise God, gave him a better opportunity to continue to practice the law, to be able to be an enforcer of the law, but it was much safer than the street beat that he was running on before. He got to work at an airport, and suddenly that's a more contained environment. There's a lot more support and help. Far fewer variables are going to pop up. For a time, though, he was actually considering going back to street work because he was having to miss so much time on a Sunday, and he hated that. Think about it. Most people would say, logically, you can't go back to the street. you got a cush job. You're getting paid more. you got better, uh, better benefits. you got a safer environment. You're not going to get gunned down by some kid who jumps out of an alley. You're going to go back to that just so that you could worship with the saints on a Sunday? And he would have. But praise God, the schedule change has made it possible for him to keep that nice job at the airport, but to be able to be with us consistently again. And I'm so grateful for that. Because I love to see the seriousness with which a brother like Ivan takes his attendance and participation in the church. Not so that he can knock it off of his list or appear godlier to anyone else. Many of you might not even have realized he wasn't here. Because it's not like he's going around tooting his own horn or anything. But simply because the man's heart loves the Lord and wants to be near to the people of the Lord. Young folks, there are a few of you in here. When you consider a career, think ahead to what it might do to hinder you from participating in the body of Christ. Some things that you would really love to do. Maybe you could find something that you love equally that would not try to rob you of your Sundays. Okay? Think about those things. Some people don't factor in the importance of the Lord's Day and they just run off into a career and before you know it, the world is dictating to them whether or not they get to go to church. But really, as a human man or woman, you have to set your priorities in life. You have to, you have to make clear what is going to be priority important to you. Again, not to condemn anyone who does acts of mercy or necessity on the Lord's day, but we need to take these things far more seriously than we do. Verses three through five in our psalm continue to speak of the joy that believers experience when they gather together, emphasizing here that we gather to give thanks to the Lord. The city described as bound firmly together speaks of the fact that this is a city where God gave them everything that they needed there. As the people of God should be The city was bound together tightly. Let us as the church of God assembled to worship be a tight assembly of believers. Not a bunch of strangers who kind of know each other's names one day a week but never interact, but a people who desire to dwell together. 
that our interactions on the Lord's Day would spill out into other days of the week, that we would see a friend, that we would call a, a, a fellow brother or sister, that we would encourage them, that we would go and pray with them when they need it or, or, or fill in when there's a special need in their home that they need support for. This city was bound firmly together and we as the people of God should too uh, be bound as well. Let us be thankful for the family function of those who call upon the name of the Lord together. I just was reflecting as I was writing this sermon. This week, Cindy's mom has been prayed for by dozens of our church members as she had a heart issue. Cameron has been given rides to and from church. Christine was picked up and delivered to doctor's appointments. Family members overseas were lifted up in petition because of needs that they had. An older sister's bill got paid for her. Hours of counsel were given to help people in this congregation deal with grief and depression. And that was just this week. That's going on all the time in this church. That's not a membership at the club where you go in and you have a drink with somebody every once in a while. It's not a membership at, at, the, at the Costco down on uh, whatever the name of that street is. Where you go and you, you shop for your groceries together, you get a little better deal, and then you go and you forget about those people for the rest of the week. This is a tightly bound family of people. And when you're a part of the church, you get to experience friendship on a different level. You get to experience integration into the lives of other people who have been blessed like you have been blessed. And so let us be thankful for the fact that when God draws us closer to him, he draws us closer to one another as well. Pastor Phil Johnson, in preaching about Psalm 122, recognizes five reasons to give thanks to the Lord. And I'm just going to steal them right from Phil because I thought they were really easy to remember. This is why we should be glad that we're going up to Jerusalem and be thankful for all that he does for us. First of all, these all start with a P as well, which I'm not so crafty as a preacher. I don't know how to put things into a literative sense like some guys do, but he notes that we get to praise the Lord and his glory when we come. We get to praise him and give him glory and honor. And when we tell God how great he is, we remember how great he is. Your praise to the Lord is going to reflect appreciation to the Lord. My heart breaks for people whose praise and worship choruses to God are just the same sentence said over and over again a hundred times. There's no real depth of understanding of who God is. There's no adoration for his unique character and his holiness. Because when we pray the attributes of God and preach them out loud and, and sing them together, we, we remember, wow, what a God we serve. How blessed I am to know this God. So the first P is praise the Lord in his glory. We are thankful because the people of God are gathered together there at God's church. The people come together and share in this wonderful union of faith. We can be unimpressive as a people. Much like we highlighted the difference between the temple and the tabernacle. There are uh, more impressive people to hang out with than Pastor Nick and Pastor Paul and Sean and Ross. We are just people. But that's not why we come together. We come together to see that other normal people, just like us, have been blessed by God. And we get to be important to one another. Not because we have a bunch of likes on Facebook or because we did something temporary but impressive. We get to be important to one another because we're going to spend eternity together and because our God has claimed us as his own. So the praise of the glory of God is something to be thankful for. The people gathered together is something to be thankful for. The protection of God is something to be thankful for. And we, we read about the towers and the throne that is set up in Jerusalem. And we think about the fact that God is indeed sitting on the throne of his church. He is the ruler of it. He looks out over it. His scripture is the boundaries that guide it and fence it in and keep it from the errors that would do us so much harm. And so when we come together as the church, God is protecting us by having us worship him and having us learn his word 
It is the best thing for us because without it, we would be wanderers. But with it, the roadmap is laid out for us. The light is unto our feet and cast upon our path. We know where to go. It is dangerous, therefore, to forsake the gathering of the saints because in doing so, you are neglecting the protection that God has to offer you in life. Fourthly, the power of God is here when we gather together. It is present here. It is present in his authority. It is present in his ability to answer our prayers in real ways. Again, note the thrones that are mentioned there. Who is ruling over us, friends? King Jesus is ruling over us. Both the kingly and the priestly authority of God were present in Jerusalem, and we recognize them as being fulfilled in Jesus and on display as he leads his church. And the final P, the last one, is the peace. The peace of God. When you gather together with the saints, you get to experience the peace of God. And you get to notice it with other people who, because of the Spirit's presence in them, can see it and can appreciate it and can value it. Verses 6 through 9, the final section of the Psalm of Ascent, focuses on the idea of peace among the gathered people of Israel. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, says. May they be secure who love you. Now, Many well-meaning pastors who preach Psalm 122 consider the sixth verse to be the key to its entire interpretation. And due to the popularity of the dispensational view of eschatology that, that many see this psalm primarily as a warning that any nation who wants to be blessed needs to have a foreign policy that is favorable to the nation that is called Israel, which is situated on the land where the Israel of Old Testament used to reside. Have we not seen that kind of theology reveal itself and evidence itself with the recent Gaza conflict that began on October 7th of last year? When Hamas launched a surprise attack on southern Israel, there was a sudden outcry for support from evangelical Christians throughout the U.S. And that comes from thinking that the nation of, of Israel is still the special people of God. Now, don't get me wrong. The attack on, on Israel by Hamas was wicked. And we should care for the people that were hurt in that. We should should want peace for that area, and we should pray diligently for it. But we shouldn't support the Israeli side of that conflict simply because we think that that's going to somehow make sure that God does good to us. That's not the aim. That that should not be our, our goal. A dispensational view of eschatology believes and teaches that while the gospel saves both Jews and Gentiles, the two groups remain essentially separate with certain covenant promises applying only to ethnic Israel and those who descend from ethnic Israel. In the dispensational point of view, the church is a necessary interruption, sometimes described as the great parentheses, that God's real story is with Israel. But then, because of Israel's disobedience and rebellion, God just pulled an audible and brought the church in for a time, just a short amount of time, to spur Israel on to jealousy. That they might say, no, you don't. That's my God. That they might eventually see the error of their ways, repent and come to full salvation. And then, okay, the lucky parentheses get saved. But really, the story is about Israel. That's dispensational teaching in a nutshell. There are problems with that view, of course, friends. And I hope that you see them without me expounding upon them. But who is true Israel today? If you've tried... To read through the Old Testament, you probably hit that brick wall when you got to passages like Numbers or Chronicles 
where they just went through and told you everybody's family. And you thought to yourself, why am I reading this for my edification? Did you stop to realize that they knew who real Israel was back then? Because they had intense records of who descended from Abraham and who belonged in these tribes and who was associated by blood with this people. Do we have any of that today? There's no more genealogy. You know, at a certain point, they stopped keeping any of those records. And so I could move to Israel and say, I'm a Jew. And there would be no proof for or against it, really. And so we don't know who ethnic Israel is. Furthermore, why is a true Jew described as one who is faithful inwardly by the scriptures as opposed to outwardly? In Romans 2.29, the Apostle Paul is talking about how circumcision of the flesh avails you very little. What matters is having a circumcised heart. So there is a, a true faith in Yahweh that defines who really is a part of the covenant people of Israel. And why is the church of God described as being grafted into the root of Israel if the two are separate? Romans 11 tells us that the root of Israel is like a tree, many branches of which were barren of fruit. And so what did God do? He does not cut the tree down. He cuts off the branches that are not bearing fruit. And he goes out to the wild trees and cuts them off of their trees and brings them and grafts them in to this wonderful root of Israel so that the nutrients of the heritage and the history of God's people would then feed these new wild branches as they abide in the love of Yahweh and His Son Christ and are flourishing in the power of the Holy Spirit to bear fruit on this one tree that is the true believers of God. Galatians 2.28, if you just need it very plain. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now this is, of course, talking about salvation. But isn't salvation what defines true Israel? Faith in Yahweh to save and to bring near? And if we're to see this psalm as nothing more than a call to support geographical Israel and the people who are there, then it becomes a very sad psalm. Almost like a dirge of sorts, if we're to pray that, that peace be within the walls of Jerusalem, what walls? They're gone. We're to, have, we're to pray for security in the towers of that city, towers that were blasted into rubble hundreds of years ago. So rather than seeing this psalm as a political strategy from the dispensational perspective, let us understand that there is a Jerusalem that is yet to come, friends. One that cannot be struck down by any foreign power. One that cannot be shaken. And the peace of knowing that God is bringing about this heavenly Jerusalem is truly a comfort to every pilgrim that walks this world today, eagerly awaiting their glorification. Listen to what the author of Hebrews chapter 12 says. Verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. What is the author of Hebrews talking about here? This is speaking of the time when Moses was commanded to go upon Mount Sinai and to receive the Ten Commandments. This was a physical depiction of the holiness of God in a way that helped Israel to see the seriousness with which they should consider their mighty creator and redeemer. If even a wild animal were to touch the mountain when Moses went up, it would be struck dead by God. And so Moses understandably trembled with fear. 
But this is not what the church has to contend with today. The author of Hebrews goes on to say in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. What is Mount Zion? That's Jerusalem, right? That's the name of the city of Jerusalem. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We have come to what kind of a Jerusalem, friends? It's similar to the Jerusalem that's spoken of by David in Psalm 122. But it's the fulfillment of that Jerusalem, which was a sign that pointed forward to the better Jerusalem to come, the heavenly Jerusalem that will show us and let us experience heaven and earth created new and brought together forever. Not separated, but joined. Today I know that I am in some ways preaching to the choir We have had an afternoon or evening service for nearly three years now. And as much as we would love to see the great majority of our congregation eager to spend this time from 2 o'clock to 3.30 together, praying over the concerns of the congregation and soaking up more discipleship and teaching from the Word of God, understanding of the confession, we, we would love to see that. But it has been a struggle to get people to come. But you are here, friends. And I have to believe the reason that you are here is likely because you could sing this psalm with an honest heart. You are glad when they say to you, let us go to the house of the Lord. You look forward to times of meditating on the Holy Scripture that God has given to you. You place a high value on gathering with the saints and experiencing true fellowship with them. Just yesterday, 70 people in here 70 people hearing Stephen preach the gospel message. And it broke my heart in a way because we might have 17 here right now. I know that the people who came yesterday didn't get to come to hear the gospel, most of them. They came for the food. They came to see the pretty temple. But let us be enamored with the gospel that is our true food. Let us desire to be in the gates with those who call upon the same God that we call upon. Let us be glad to go to the house of the Lord together. Father, we praise you and worship you. And we're grateful for your heart for us. And we confess, Lord God, our unfaithfulness, that there are so many things that we would rather do often than give you the glory that you deserve, God. Please discipline us like we're your children, God. Bring us into a better understanding of what we need from you. We don't want to continue in a pattern of neglect. And so I ask, Lord, that you would help us to have a great desire to want to know more and to want to grow, to want to serve one another, Lord God, and to just want to be around the people that you love so much that you sent your son to die for them. God, humble our hearts today. and I pray that each time we pull into the parking lot, Father, that we would think about the Psalms of Ascent, that we would think about how blessed we are to have the freedom to be able to come and do this out in the public view, be able to invite our friends here, to be able to declare without shame, without fear of imprisonment or persecution, really, that you are the true God. And if those tangential benefits and blessings are one day taken away from us, I pray that those who are yours would continue to gather, even at risk to themselves, Lord God. We pray it doesn't come to that but we do lift up our brothers and sisters 
who are worshiping even today under the threat of persecution. And we ask that you have mercy on them, Lord God. And we know that you are giving the best thing that you can give to them. You're giving them yourself even now as they worship. It's worth it for them. And it's worth it for us. Because what we need most, more than anything else, we don't need the lights and the smoke machines. We don't need to be told we're good enough. We need you, Lord God. Draw us near and hold us close in Jesus' name. Amen.